I just have to pre-apologize here this morning. We may have a bit of a longer sermon just because I have a rant here at the start that may take longer than I had anticipated. So anyway, all that aside, this here is uh, what's known as the grape vine. Not the grape vine, although it is a grape vine. It's also called the great vine. So I guess if you want a real tongue twister, you could say it's the great grape vine. Um, It's from Hampton Court in the UK. And it is about 250 years old. It was planted in 1768 uh, by a man named Lancelot Brown. It is the world's oldest living grapevine. And you can see how massive it is. That's the root there that's like growing out, looks like a, a termite mound or something. And that's the outs- it goes outside on the building. And that's the inside. At the next, I think it's the next slide is what it looks like on the outside when it's all in bloom. There. So like that's massive. It's got great, you can see the grape clusters hanging off there. Um, it was planted at, for the royal family, right? Supposed to be grapes for the royal uh, family and royal family alone in 17, uh, 1768. Uh, now, despite the fact that it is 250 years old, it regularly produces five to 700 branches, not bunches, but branches of grapes a year. Uh, and each uh, yield, I guess, weighs between 230 and 320 kilos per year of grapes that it, uh, that it produces. So this is 250-year-old uh, grapevine that's producing like uh, up to 300 kilos of grapes a year. Uh, the largest crops were in 17, uh, 1798 uh, and 1807, where it was over 2,500 bunches of grapes. Um, and some of the branches, the furthest branches are 35 meters away from the root. So that's a long, long way away, but they still produce vine. Apparently, they're delicious grapes. And these days, if you're ever in Hampton Court, you guys, if you're ever visiting, you can actually, and, and you happen to be at the right time of year, you can buy some of these grapes and taste the grapes that were intended for royalty. But I just want to get us thinking about grapevines and things like that this morning because our text for today is in John 15, John chapter 15, and we're looking at the first eight verses, although the whole, I guess, uh, chapter kind of deals with this. We're going to look at the first eight verses of John chapter 15. We're going to kind of sit ourselves there this morning. So if you want to uh, have your Bible open to there, it would be very helpful for you today. So. It says, remember, this is still in the farewell discourse, right? Remember Jesus' farewell discourse as he's saying goodbye to his disciples. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, And a lot of people think that they were on their way from the upper room through to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they either passed a vineyard or they passed the temple. And in the temple at the time, uh, there was uh, this big vine decorating, uh, made of gold, decorating the... um, the inner courtyard or the outer courtyard, the Gentiles' courtyard of the temple on the wall there. And um, people would donate gold and it would be melted down and put into, uh, made into bunches, grape bunches that would then be put on, the, on this vine. And so they think that as Jesus is walking along, he passes the temple and he's like, well, let's take some time to explain this. Or he passes a grapevine, a vineyard, and he says, let's take some time to explain this. And so he's like walking along, he's like, hey, there's a, vi- there's a vine. I, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener or the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. 
and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. And he says it again, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Let's pray as we come to think about these verses this morning. Lord Jesus, it is, uh, it is so good to be able to really dig into your word and to consider these things that you say about yourself, Lord. We just pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds to really understand and grasp what it is that you are saying to us through these words. Be with us and present here this morning, even more, uh, even in more reality than you are right now. Continue to help us to press into you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's my small rant, and if you don't like it, we can just take, you can put it to the side and don't count this as my sermon time, all right? This is my small rant. I want to pick up on a word that Jesus talks, it's a very small word. Uh, in, in Greek, it's actually longer than it is in English, but that's fine. Um, and just kind of talk about that for a minute. And Jesus said, I am the true vine. And I just want to pick up on this idea of truth. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I think it was Alistair made the point that uh, a, a, a sentence that you'll hear in conversations that you'll have with people today is there's no such thing as objective truth, which, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, is a self-refuting statement. But I want you to see how... because. <clears throat> Often we think about these kind of things as abstract philosophical questions, right? Oh, there's no such thing as objective truth. Oh, and we talk about our self-refuting statement, and you're like, oh, whatever. But I want you to see how these ideas play out in the real world. And I've got a couple of examples here. Because the, these ideas sound so nice and inclusive, right? Everyone just believe whatever they want, and everyone's truth is okay, and you can get along, we can all just get along. But these ideas, when they play out to their end, have real-world consequences. And more often than not, real people suffer tragically at the hands of evil people. So we're going to start where everyone starts when they talk about evil and suffering. Any ideas? That's right. Thank you, Matt. Nazi Germany, right? Now, the, the Allies, after they'd won the war, had a real issue with dealing with the Nazi war criminals that they had because the laws against the Jews, the, the defense of the Nazi leaders was, we didn't do anything illegal. Technically, everything that they did was legal under their legal system, right? So that who's going to prosecute them under their legal system? They were like, well, it's not, my, it's not illegal in my country. I didn't do anything wrong uh, under the law. And this is really interesting because often we think today, and lots of people will think today, that just because something is legal, that makes it moral, right? There's this equivalence between legality and morality. And we think that, oh, well, it's, it's legal to, you know, ship Jews off to concentration camps, so therefore it must be moral. 
it's legal to, uh, you know, euthanize people. Therefore, it must be moral, right? We have this idea that legality equals morality, but we can't fall into that trap, right? We have to question and ask. So how can you prosecute someone when they don't, when they don't have any higher standard than their own national law? Well, uh, we would say you prosecute them by God's law, right? But they came up with the solution that they had a, a law above the law, and that was the Hague, right? That was the... Um, which is a bit of a silly thing because then what happens when you don't like that law? You can just create a law above that law and you just keep going, right? Um, the, so you just get an arbitrary law, set of laws that will prosecute people uh, that you don't like. And so that's how they came up with that problem. They were like, well, no, actually we'll make some international laws that apply to everyone in any country no matter what. Now, so they, they prosecuted them at The Hague and uh, Nuremberg trials and everything like that. But um, you might think that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore, okay? But it does, and it's happening right now, in case you're wondering, okay? I don't know if you've heard of these people, right? Have you heard of these people in the news? Some of you are shaking your head yes, and others of you are like, maybe not, okay? These, uh, this is an ethnic group of people, and I think it said Uyghur. The Uyghur Muslim people in China, they live in the northwest. I'm getting my compass directions. I think they live in the northwest of China in uh, a province called Xinjiang. And they are currently, uh, these ethnic people are being held in uh, what we might call concentration camps, re-education camps, uh, work camps, um, to, uh, and subjected to terrible, terrible treatment. Right. The only way that we know about this is because uh, some reporters have managed to get satellite images of these concentration camps, and I'm not going to put any pictures on the on the board or anything like that. But you can just uh, you can Google that that phrase, and you can see the stories. Now, uh, the the Chinese government says no, this is not uh, this is not the case. These are just you know we're just helping them to acclimatize to Chinese life and all this sort of stuff. But there's been reports of people who've escaped from these camps who tell very different stories, things about torture and people being up in the night and women being brutalized and forced sterilizations and forced abortions and things like that. Um, it is a genocide, a modern-day genocide. The, US, uh, the BBC ran a big uh, story on this. And I don't know if you know, but China has a massive firewall, uh, internet firewall around them. And so they can control whatever their people want to access on the internet. And they banned the BBC in China for, for running the story, saying they're spreading lies and, and doing all this sort of stuff. The U.S. State Department said these atrocities shock the conscience and must be met with serious consequences. New Zealand has signed a declaration along with 23 other countries, a U.N. document that says among other things. We call on the Chinese government to uphold its national laws and international obligations and commitments to respect human rights, including freedom of religion or belief in Xinjiang and across China. Now, uh, it was big news in, I think, March, maybe April. Uh, president Joe Biden had a phone conversation with the president of China. And afterwards, he was asked by an interviewer whose name I don't remember, pretty famous guy in the States apparently, he was asked about what they talked about in terms of China's involvement in a number of areas, specifically around these concentration 
re-education and really torture camps. And uh, this is what he said. Culturally, there are different norms that each country and their leaders are expected to follow. That's what he said uh, in front of, uh, on national TV. Right now, there's a term for this. This term is called cultural relativism. Okay, and this is the idea that, and it's a Western idea, okay, so it's found in the West, like uh, Western Europe and the United States and New Zealand, Australia, Canada, all those sort of places, that uh, because the Western countries have in the past been colonizers of other countries, like uh, countries in Africa and South America and Middle East and and, uh, Southeast Asia and places like that, uh, we have enforced our alien moral frameworks on them, and so therefore now we cannot criticize any aspect of those cultures, okay? Because we oppressed them, we were dominating and domineering over them, and we therefore cannot now speak into those. To get a non-Western country to accept that there are human rights abuses taking place requires us to impose again our understanding of human rights on them. This is the doctrine of cultural relativism, right? And so you can see why the president would be hesitant to speak out because he's like, well, actually, I don't want to be uh, a colonizer. You know, that's a terrible word in today's, uh, in today's society. And each culture produces its own ethics and produces its own morals. And so therefore, I can't enforce my morals on another culture that has come up with this. We can't speak into what's right and what's wrong. So you can see how this plays out. How can anyone say that what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims is wrong? How could anyone say that what was happening in Nazi Germany was wrong? Because that culture had produced that moral standard and it was perfectly legal in that country. Now the thing is, Christianity, our faith, cuts right across that. And it claims that there actually are ultimate, objective, moral values and duties that are given to us by God. And that living in accordance with them, even though it may be difficult, is actually the best way to live. And that's why we have to continue to, ex- to insist that there is objective reality, that there is a right and a wrong way to go about doing things. And that's part of the witness of the church, of this group of people and the church around the world, a people who together live in such a way that they reflect the truth of the world. And we have inherited this duty from the people of Israel. And we're going to talk about this right now because Jesus says that he is the true vine. Okay, so now we can, we can go back into the sermon because that's my rant over about truth. We, we can... Um, Jesus says that he is the true vine. Now, I want you to understand the Old Testament background to this statement and why this is such a big deal for, um, for the, the disciples listening to it. Going, They'd be going, whoa, what's going on? Right, the true vine. So we're going to listen to, we're going to read some scriptures, and I want you to think about how Jesus takes on this identity of the vine and what it means. So, Isaiah, no, Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verses 8 to 16. This is the psalmist talking to God. You, God, dug up a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots towards the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its fruit? Balls from the forest tear at it and creatures of the, on the field of the field feed on it. 
Return, God of armies. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine, the root your right hand planted, the sun that you made, you made strong for yourself. It was cut down and burned. They perished at the rebuke of your countenance. Then Jeremiah two twenty one, I planted you, this is God talking to Israel, a choice vine from the very best seeds. How then could you turn into a degenerate and foreign vine? Then Hosea 10, 1 to 2. Israel is a lush vine. It yields fruit for itself. The more his fruit increased, the more he increased the altars. That's altars, obviously, to other gods. Uh, the better his land produced, the better they made uh, their sacred pillars. Their hearts are devious. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and demolish their sacred pillars. Then one of the most famous ones is from Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. There we go. Blank, blank screen in there. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug up out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. Then Genesis, uh, then, yeah, so... All of these verses, what do they say about Israel? They say that Israel is the vine of God, called to be the vine, called to be a witness through their lives, through the spread of their faith to the person of God. They had to reflect the reality of who God is. People were supposed to look at Israel and see God. This is evident from the call of Abram in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, from your relatives, to your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's promise to Abram, and it's the promise that is inherited by his children and his descendants and the people of Israel. God uh, reiterates this through the different prophets throughout their history. Here's uh, one example from Isaiah. He says, Isaiah 49, 6, he says, that's God, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So that's the call of Israel, to be a blessing through which everyone is blessed, to be a light to the nations. But as you can see from all of those vine passages, they had not done that. Israel at the time of Jesus had actually been very concerned more with just their own survival than anything else. They'd been through a difficult time. Just after Isaiah prophesied this, they were taken away into exile to Babylon for 70 years. Then they were allowed to come back, but they were basically like a, a small vassal state. And then what happened is Alexander the Great conquered uh, basically the whole world, and uh, Israel was uh, taken uh, captive by uh, Alexander the Great. Then when he died, his empire was split into four, and two of the empires, the border was kind of on Israel, and for uh, like 300 years, they were fought over backwards and forwards by these two kingdoms. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids were the names of the two kingdoms. And 
Then the Romans came along and conquered them. And this is kind of where we are at the moment. They're concerned with not necessarily being a light to the nations, not necessarily expanding out what it means to be God's people. They're concerned with just surviving under the rule of the empire. And they'd also limited their thinking to this geopolitical sphere where uh, everything that happens in the physical and in the, uh, in the political is what uh, is important. And so the Messiah that they were looking for was this military leader who was going to uh, lead them in conquest of the whole world. So they're not living out of, and we've seen this throughout all the I am statements that we've looked at, right? They're not living out of this deeper spiritual reality. When Jesus is talking about how he's the bread of life, people are thinking, oh, he's going he, he's to give us bread like manna from heaven. But he says, no, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He's, he's talking about these deeper spiritual realities. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the one who now represents God to the world. I am the one in whom God's presence resides. I have taken the place of the people. I am now the vine and the planting of God in the world. You know, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the mustard seed that is small, but it spreads out to become a big tree. And this is what he's He's talking about here that he is now the vine and we can become grafted in to become a people who participate in sharing the mission of Jesus in the world to witness to the kingdom. And so how do we do that? Well, we become connected to the vine. That's what he's talking about because that's where the life is, right? Those branches in that, um, in that massive vine, the great grapevine, uh, in Hampton Court, the ones that are 35 meters away from the, from the root, they still bear fruit because they are connected to the vine because that's where the life is, not in the branches, not in themselves. And so we have to abide, abide in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you a story, a news, true story about a couple. Uh, this was a few years ago. They were in their 90s, very old couple, and they were driving into town for date night. Don't ask me why they're in their 90s and they're still driving a car, but that's okay. They had a crash, all right, which I guess you kind of were waiting to happen when they, you know, unless they're really, you know, some people can drive for a long time. I don't know. I'm judging right now. But uh, anyway, they had a crash. They were taken to hospital and they were doing okay for a little while, right? Um, But then as the days went by, they took a turn for the worse. You know, they're very, very fragile and... um, there was nothing that the doctors could do for them. So the doctors called the family in, and they put these, this husband and wife in. I mean, these guys have been married for like 60 years, you know, uh, more than 60 years. And so they put them in beds next to each other so they could hold hands um, and just be together. They had them all hooked up to the different monitors, you know, the brain monitor, the heart monitor, all this stuff, just to, to see how they were doing. They had the family gathered around, beautiful, beautiful scene, you know, praying for them kind of saying their goodbyes, and then the husband suddenly took a turn for the worse, and he died. But the strange thing was that his brain activity monitor had shut down, but his heart monitor was still beeping, right? didn't go beep, wasn't flatlining. And so, I mean, the family was upset, as you expect, but they were kind of like, well, hold on a second. His brain has shut down, but his heart's still beating. What's going on with that? And the doctors said, no, actually... What's happened is because he's holding his wife's hand, his heart monitor is picking up her heartbeat through his, through his, uh, his body. 
and her heartbeat is being transferred to his monitor. Her heart, her life was beating through him. And that's a great picture of what abiding looks like. Right? We are the branches. We're not the vine. We don't have life in us. Right? Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? But then he tells us in Romans, now if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in, among them, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. So he tells us we were dead, but we've been grafted in. God made us alive in Christ by grafting us into the tree, or the vine in this case. And because of that, he goes on to say later in Romans 11, he says, don't boast about it, <laughs> right? Because it's clear from, from all of Paul's writings that there's the thing that... Um, saves us, the thing that grafts us in, is not what we do, it's God's grace to us. And it's his life flowing through us. It's not our own life that we have managed to work up. It means that to abide in Jesus is to have his life flowing through us, his heart beating inside of us. Not only to accept him as our savior, but to continue in that, to continue to believe. Even if uh, the world around us is screaming that, hey, you guys shouldn't believe this. It's crazy. It's going to make you do crazy things. I saw, I saw a TV show, started watching a TV show the other day, uh, an old TV show that I'd never seen before. And it was uh, one of those criminal shows that's like a psychology kind of a thing that it, it goes into the psychology of criminals. And the, the very second episode, right, the first one was the pilot episode. It was about a, what was it about? It's about a bomber, uh, a, a bomber, right? And then the second one was about a serial arsonist. And uh, they found out at the end that this serial arsonist was a Christian. And they were, they were lighting these fires because they worshiped God as a consuming fire, right? And I was like, oh, okay, that's really, that's really drawing a long bow there. But, you know, the world tries to tell us that our religion is dangerous, Okay, but we have to stand strong. We have to say, no, actually, uh, we need to. Uh, our religion is dangerous only to you if you want to control us and uh, and tell us what to do because we worship God alone. I mean, that's the song we sang, right? I will worship you and you alone. And this is why uh, even other Abrahamic religions get in trouble, like the the Muslims in China, because they were they don't have the state as their highest authority, and in the communist state. Uh, which China is, the state needs to be the highest authority. But for us, God is the highest authority. Jesus says uh, a few verses down, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So there's a dimension of obedience being worked out here. To abide in part is to obey. People often say that, oh, you just need to just believe in Jesus. You say the prayer and you're good to go, right? Some people call it, um, uh, what do they call it? Eternal fire insurance or something like that, you know, fire safety insurance. Um, but the truth is that there will be an outward transformation of your behavior as you orient yourself outwards and away from your own desires to the desires of Jesus. So to abide in Jesus is to remain firmly attached to him through our faith in him, through our daily 
interactive relationship with him and our obedience to his life and his ways. Then we will bear fruit. Okay, I went outside and I picked a branch earlier today. And uh, this branch is, uh, looks alive, doesn't it? Like it's nice and green, it looks alive, but we know that it's dead because it's not attached to the source of its life, right? As soon as I, I murdered this branch this morning, right? It's like, I've got to go and kill a branch, right? Bam, got it. Now, the thing is, there's no way that we could actually get this branch, I guess you, if you grafted it back in, but just as it is right now, there's no way that we could get it to bear any fruit or flower or bud or do anything like that. We couldn't do it because it doesn't have the connection to the tree that's required to do that. I mean, we could make it look like it was bearing fruit, you know, if you wanted to, I don't know, spray some, some glue on it to make it nice and shiny, and you could maybe glue on some, some flowers or some fruit to make it look good. But it's, it would be fake, right? It would be fake. It would be dead, and it wouldn't have any fruit because it's not connected. It doesn't have the connection, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that because we are connected to the vine or the tree, as Paul puts it, the olive tree, then out of that connection will naturally flow the fruit that comes. And so we're not like this, right? We're not, this is the, what Jesus says to the, about these is that these are the branches that are thrown away, then gathered up and burnt, right? But we're not like that. We're the ones that are connected to the vine and we produce fruit. And it simply comes out of that connection. It's not something that we have to work at Particularly, we're not focused on the fruit, we're focused on the connection, and then the fruit will come. It's not something we take credit for, we can't say, oh, look look at what I did. No, it's look at what the life of Christ did through me. Fruit comes from our dwelling, our being attached to, our embodying the life of the vine. That's Jesus, the person who was the exact representation of God, who said earlier in John's gospel that he and the Father are one. And when we do that, we become God's representatives here on the earth. And if you are here last week, you heard Mazza talk about that little passage in Acts 4.13, where Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. And we're going to talk about this in about three, four weeks' time when we get to, to our next series. And they're interviewing Peter, and he, he told, he, in verse 13, he mentioned this little verse that says, they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. They saw that the, the way that they spoke, the, the theology that they had, their way of doing things was like their rabbi. And they're like, I recognize that way of talking. I recognize that way of being. That was how Jesus of Nazareth was. People are supposed to see Jesus in us. That's our mission. That's whatever sphere of life we find ourselves in, we are to reflect the person of Jesus. The person who John said to us at the start of his gospel is full of grace and truth. So I want us to finish by doing a couple of things here. I want us to watch a little video clip, right? A little video clip to watch uh, in a second. It's a little clip from the great preacher John Stott. Okay, and it's not actually of him. Someone's taken the audio of his preaching and they've put it to a little video. And it's about the passage that we're looking at, but it's something that I didn't have time to pick up on. Um, and his English accent just makes it sound epic. So I thought we'd just play it and, uh, and he can speak to us. But he talks about this idea of pruning, right, which is in verse uh, 2 and 3 there. Every branch that in me that 
bears fruit, he prunes so that we'll bear more fruit. I know that some of us may be going through this pruning stage, or at least feel like we're going through a pruning stage. And pruning is terrible. And you'll see what pruning looks like in this video. And it doesn't, it feels like everything's been stripped away and that there's nothing left except the bare bones. But the thing is, God never does anything without purpose, without intention, without an end goal. And so he's always working. So I want us to watch this video and be encouraged. And then I want us to take some time while we're singing, and you will see that we have some lovely bunches of grapes up the front here. And I want you to take some time. If you want to come up the front, grab a bunch of grapes and think about this is the outcome of being connected to the vine. Of course, now these have been ripped off the vine, and if you leave them, they're going to go, they're going to die, right? These have been murdered as well. If you're a fruitarian, we've murdered the fruit. Um, but, uh, um, but I want you to take some of these and just sit and think about how your connection is and how you might be producing this fruit. And again, not to work up and focus on the fruit, but to think about how your connection is with the vine. How was it? How is it? And how does God want you to bear fruit in keeping with his life? How is it going to manifest itself in your life? Let's pray, then we'll watch the video, and then we'll respond. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the vine, that you are the source of life, that you are the one who uh, gives us true, abundant life, as you promised us. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that you would strengthen the connection that we have to you, that if there's anything that needs pruning away in our lives, Lord, we dare to pray that dangerous prayer that you would prune it away from us, for our good, Lord. We know that, uh, as Hebrews says, that no discipline feels pleasant when you're going through it, but that ultimately it's to produce the fruit of righteousness. And so we pray that you would produce in our lives the fruit of righteousness. And uh, may these grapes, as we, as we sit with them and we eat them and we enjoy their fruit, may we be reminded that you are wanting to work out that fruit in us and in our lives, Lord. So help us to really grasp and understand that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.